Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Welcome everyone to the Land of Israel Fellowship. It's beautiful to see you all. Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, there's just a lot going on. But before we say anything, I really want to thank Tabitha. During the war, every week, she puts together such a beautiful slideshow showing all the beautiful things that are happening, the touching things that are happening, the speeches that are not aired anywhere. We don't have time to share everything on the fellowship. And she just puts out the most beautiful slideshow every week for all the people that come a little bit early to just get a little bit more light from Israel. So yeah, everyone's clapping. Thank you, Tabitha, for that. That's just um, just what's happening with our soldiers, what's happening with our families. Like, look at that amazing behind the scenes picture. You just don't, there's so many hostages and there's so many stories. But then when you see that little girl walking to her kindergarten for the first time after spending almost two months in tunnels with terrorists. I mean, it's just, how do we keep on living? It's like, there's so much, it's an overload. It's like an overload. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Tabitha, for that. Um, every fellowship, uh, I like to start with a prayer, but this is a very unique time. It's Hanukkah. It's the darkest time of the year. And so I want to light Hanukkah candles together. And I thought that that would be a beautiful thing. I'm in um, the heart of Israel right now. And here we are all together. And, you know, there is laws regarding the how to light Hanukkah candles. And one of them is near Ish Ubeto, that really you should light the Hanukkah candles, ideally each person in their home. Meaning Hanukkah is meant to be a family holiday where the Greeks were all about the destruction of family, very similar to the woke movement today. Hanukkah is all about fighting that Greek Hellenism and bringing the family together. And so the halacha is, listen, if you're a soldier out in the army, okay, well, you'll light Hanukkah candles under the stars. But ideally, it's a family holiday where we light families together. And Tehila and I and Ari, we look at the fellowship and we really feel like this is our family. It's a funny looking family. We don't all even speak the same language. We're scattered around the world. We're all detached from each other. But in some ways, we are spiritual family. And so what more beautiful thing could we do than light Hanukkah candles together? And the second idea that I wanted to share is the holiday is really an ancient, ancient holiday. The Midrash says that Adam actually inaugurated the first holiday. It was the first holiday because Adam was created on Rosh Hashanah, and then the days started getting shorter because the winter was coming, and Adam had never lived through an entire cycle before. Finally, his consciousness was aware of what was happening, and he thought that the world was getting darker and was eventually just going to become dark and destroyed. He was thought there's no more light, and then right at the darkest time, he noticed that the light started getting more, and right there, he established a holiday, and that's why until today, a lot of the pagan traditions, they'll have a candle at the darkest time of the year. That's like a lot of like the Christmas uh, traditions have the same idea. It's a really, really ancient, ancient holiday. And Hanukkah really brought it, uh, brought the holiness out of that encrypted time. But the idea is that at the darkest time, when Adam thought it was getting darker and darker, the halacha of the Hanukkah candles is mosif vehulet. You add on and you multiply the light. Every night, we add another candle. And as the nights are getting darker and darker, we keep on adding more and more candles. And so in this dark time for everyone, 
What is Hanukkah about? It's giving us the hope to bring more and more light. And so now we are at the fourth night of Hanukkah. And so we will light Hanukkah candles together, kick off the fellowship. And so here we go. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav V'tzivanu lehadlikner Shel Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who commanded us to light the candles of Hanukkah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, she'asa nisim lavoteinu, bayamim ha'em, ba'azman Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who performed miracles for our fathers in those days and in our time. All right, we'll keep those there for the fellowship so the lights will be shining on behind us. I'm glad that that worked out. I was a little bit nervous technically how we were going to do that. And so now there's just one more little prayer that we say together. And it goes like this. Al hanisim milchamot. Sheasita la voteinu, Sheasita la voteinu, Bayamimahem, 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 Bazman haze. Aliade koaneha hakdoshim, we call Shmon at Yemea Hanuka, Hanero, Talalo Kodeshem, Vela no reshoot leishta mezbahem, Ela alirotam bilva, kedelo do to lea le shimha hagadol, al niseha, al niflotecha, ve al yeshua techa. We kindle these lights to commemorate the salvation the miracles, the wonders which you performed for our fathers in those days at this time through your holy priests. Throughout the eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are sacred. We're not permitted to make use of them, but only to look at them in order to offer thanks and praise to your great name for your miracles, for your wonders and your salvations. Amen. All right, friends. You know, there's a big question. Um, Hanukkah, you know, it's not in the Torah. How could it be that God is commanding us to light the Hanukkah candles? That's the commandment that we say. But I think that that really is the full acknowledge, like it's fully coming to grips that the people of Israel were chosen by God to lead the world into a new era. And people that are honest observers, you know, even Christians, they can't um, disregard the fact that Jesus went to the temple to celebrate Hanukkah. It was a full-blown rabbinic holiday. And yet he was there celebrating that rabbinic holiday, saying that exact blessing that we say now. So it's not just the Bible, but it really is the Jewish people. And they're holding the torch of the Torah and carrying it forward and guarding it throughout the generations. And so that's kind of like a word to the Karaites. <laughs> So Hanukkah is definitely not a Karite-like holiday.
Um, so I want to start off this fellowship. Um, I have so much to say. I, I can't not talk about the war. And we are in a new stage in the war. The Hamas fighters are surrendering to the IDF in droves. Ishai Fleischer, my dear friend, said it gives a new meaning to the word the Gaza Strip because all of the terrorists, they have to take their shirts off to not make sure that they don't have booby traps on them. And another, I saw a funny thing on Twitter. It says, well, I guess we know where all the humanitarian aid is going. They're kind of fat terrorists. Like they've eaten all the humanitarian aid, the Hamas terrorists. And so all these people are sort of joking about the terrorists. And, you know, I look at these, you know, images and the, to me, the Hamas just represent everything bad in the world. The cowards, very brave when they're pumped on drugs and attacking arm, unarmed boys and girls at a music and peace festival, killing the elderly and children on a Shabbat morning. But then cowards when facing the IDF. And they're so ugly. I look at these warmongering hate-filled cowards, and they're just so ugly. Our last enemies, the Nazis, they weren't cowardice. They weren't ugly. They were intelligent. The average IQ in Gaza is around 70. And if you like, you continuously marry your cousins over and over again, that's how they're able to be indoctrinated, to become so barbaric and so savage. Forrest Gump, for those of you that are familiar with that movie, that character's IQ was meant to be about 75. So the average Gazan is holding it around 70, and they have no honor. I mean, I thought your God was so great. You're yelling Allah Akbar all the time. Why are you surrendering now? Where's your great God now, Hamas? They're just a disgraceful enemy, the embodiment of everything wrong in the world. Cowards and ugly and stupid, and they have no honor. Ugh, I'm so happy that they're surrendering. Because in all seriousness, it's a really good thing that they are filled now with a spirit of fear and cowardice. Um, it's like come over our enemies. Because I just got this message from a friend of mine named Hillel Fold. He publicized this WhatsApp that was between him and a father in uh, the IDF. And if you can see, it says, hi, Hillel, thanks for all the great work you do. I can say my son was on guard duty at 3 a.m. in the morning in Gaza. Not exactly we're sure uh, which area in Gaza, as we have limited info. A few nights ago, 47 terrorists popped out of a tunnel waving a white flag. He feels incredibly blessed that they didn't come out with guns blazing, or it could have been a different story. And so the grace that God is giving the IDF soldiers, that these um, evil Hamas terrorists are being stricken with fear, and just surrendering <laughs> is a miracle. Thank God, because I was convinced that they are hell-bent on going to hell. They want to go straight to the next world because they've been taught that they're going to get virgins and alcohol and all the pleasures of this world. Like they signed their treaty with the devil and they want to like get good on that. And now all of a sudden, they've all just proven to be absolute cowards. And this is just a new stage in any war in Israel. I don't ever remember seeing mass surrender of hundreds of terrorists just giving up like that so it is in some ways a hanukkah miracle and it's thank god every soldier that doesn't need to fight every soldier that is protected because of their surrender thank you god and so that is an, a, a new reality that's happening in israel and uh 
It's like a little bit of a Hanukkah miracle sent to us. Um, you know, not everyone looking in Israel can find out about the news and see what's happening and the Hamas are surrendering. But um, what I want to do before we get in is I want to share some of the stories that are happening in Israel that have touched my heart so deeply that in some ways it's really changed my life. And um, this is just another story of Hanukkah. And so Noah and Mayana Hershkowitz were among the murdered on October 7th. Their family home was set on fire and literally just reduced to a burnt shell. And one item was found in the rubble and the ashes. It was a Hanukkah, a Hanukkah menorah. That's the only thing that they found. Everything else was burned. And Tamir, Noam and Mayana's son, a man who saw his parents viciously murdered, his childhood home destroyed, everything burnt to ashes. He found one thing, a menorah, the symbol of Jewish hope and light. And on the first night of Hanukkah, Tamir came back to his family's home to light that Hanukkah where his parents were murdered. And I just bless him that the light will triumph over all the darkness in his life. Because that's really what the story of Hanukkah is, the undying hope of the land of Israel and how much darkness that they want to bring onto the world. The Jewish people keep on adding another candle of light. And so every since I heard that story, every time I light my candles, I'm just thinking about Tamir. And you know that place is not the most religious place. It wasn't the most observant place. But look what happens. Look what's coming out now of the people of Israel. Just an absolute revolution, a revolution revolving all the way back to the beginning. Just a pure faith back to lighting Hanukkah candles. And so there's one more story that I want to share with you that you're just not going to find it on the news because it's not newsworthy. It's just um, true and real. And so the story is about a young man or an old boy named Aner Shapira. That's his face there. And so he grew up in a religious family. And I believe he has seven other siblings. And he was in the army at that time on October 7th. And on his break, he went down to the music and peace festival that was targeted by the Hamas. And it was, of course, total chaos. The I mean, there are a bunch of like, peace-loving hippies singing songs you know they didn't have weapons there they were just there for a music festival so the girls were raped and the men were killed and people were kidnapped and murdered and just absolute chaos and there was one area uh, right outside the music festival that's called a migunit it's kind of like a small bomb shelter and instinctively people ran to that migunit and if you see the picture, oh, you can't see the picture here for some reason. It's got cut out from the bottom. But that picture has people all on the bottom, all huddling up like this. And they're all just hiding because outside bullets are flying, gunshots, RPGs. And you see Aner alone standing at the front of that door, just protecting all of those 30 plus people with his body. The terrorists throw in a grenade. Aner was in a commando unit in the Naha. So he's not only brave, but he's also very coordinated. 
he catches the grenade either in midair or on the floor and throws it back out. They throw in another grenade. He catches another grenade, saving all of the people that are just cowering behind him, boys and girls from a music festival. And he's at the door, heroically standing there, defending them with his body. He doesn't have a gun. Seven grenades were thrown into that little bomb shelter. And Amer caught all seven grenades and kept on throwing them out until finally he was hit and killed, but the people behind him were saved. And no one knew anything. You know, during the Shiva, you know, the seven days that you sit and mourn after someone is buried, you know, he was just another casualty. And in the middle of the Shiva, one of the people that was in that Migunit, in that bomb shelter, who took the picture, blew the picture up and gave it to the parents and said, I want you to know how your son died. He was so heroic. Standing there, you can see in the picture here, all of the people are just huddled over. And then one girl with her smartphone picked up her phone and took a picture. And that's the last picture we have of Aner there. And that's his father there, and that's his mother. And you just see, like, what a hero of Israel. Just a, a young man, you know, in his late teens at a music festival. And when everyone else is cowering behind him, standing there, guarding them with his body, it's like the untold stories of the heroes of Israel. And I was just thinking about those parents knowing that their kid wasn't just killed at a music festival, but their kid saved dozens and dozens of those people's lives in the most heroic act because he didn't have a gun or a knife. He was protecting them with himself. And the when I juxtapose that to these Hamas cowards surrendering in their underpants, the disgrace of it all, it's like, could you juxtapose something so beautiful and so good and so honorable and so noble and so holy and so righteous to something so gross and evil and cowardice and wrong? And like just the light and the dark have never been so clear before. And something remarkable is happening now because you would imagine with war in Israel, the Jews around the world are like, good thing that I'm in Lakewood. Good thing that I'm in New York. And a poll was just taken amongst ultra-Orthodox Jews in the United States. And the Jerusalem Post put out an article saying nearly 40% of U.S. ultra-Orthodox Jews are considering Aliyah amid rising anti-Semitism. So right now, Israel, not just the state of Israel, the people of Israel, are being shaken up right now. And 40%, if you understand, if hundreds of thousands of Jews after this war move to Israel, things are going to change in this country because the people that are thinking of coming now are the believers. The people that were waiting for Mashiach to come, waking up to say it's time for us to help bring Mashiach. And that will be an absolute revolution. And a rabbi just told me today, that he read in a mystical source 
that at the end of days, God chooses one by one the Jewish people who come home to Israel now. And they'll be the ones that have enough faith and trust in God to stand up against the nations, do what needs to be done, and finish the job once and for all. And so what a time, like when the the chicken grows as the egg decays. So something is breaking now and something is new is coming into the world. And so I think that we need the Torah to give us guidance. And if we live by the light of the Torah and we realize that everything that's happening in Israel is a spice cart that's being sent to us for us to understand, for us to draw meaning from, then the pathway to Zion will be illuminated all the way to a new Jerusalem. And so with that, I want to introduce Ari. Um, he has prepared a Torah for us today. He wasn't able to come on live, um, but I just, we spoke about it and it's beautiful. Shalom friends. It's uh, so good to see all of you um, recording this, uh, pre-recording this, as I'm not sure that I will be able to successfully broadcast today. Uh, so uh, so this is a, a pre-recording. Um, and, you know, in, in the past week's fellowships, I've been doing a lot of focusing on on how this war uh, that we're in is primarily a war within our own hearts. I've been focusing on how it's an inside game. And I think that I've been focusing so much on this because it's a form of, of self-therapy. Because my, <clears throat> my heart is, uh, it's, it's, I feel like it's been my primary battlefield. There are so many enemies attacking us, attacking me, anger, rage, fear, perspective, focus, just to name a, a few of them. But underneath so many of these spiritual adversaries attacking me um, is a general foundation of wishing, often I find myself wishing that this whole thing wasn't happening at all, that this wasn't our reality, that this wasn't our situation, that we weren't just viciously and horrifically massacred in the South, that I didn't wake up every morning to new soldiers' faces every single morning with the first words of the notification being those cursed words, cleared for publication. That's what it always says, cleared for publication, meaning that the family's been told and now the rest of the country can find out. And every single day, more murdered, dead soldiers, these jewels. I found myself wishing things that things were, were different. <clears throat> and then when reading through this week's Parsha, the Torah portion, I encountered an idea that really spoke to me. And in some way, um, I felt like there was a healing that happened when I re-encountered this idea. I got it from a Biederman who brings the, you know, these beautiful ideas I often share with you. And the idea was around this whole idea of wishing that everything like this wasn't happening, wishing that the world was different. Uh, but before I get to it, let me just take a moment and paint a backdrop for you. So Yosef is sold into, uh, he's thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers that hated him so much they wanted to kill him. And after enduring that horrific and perfidious betrayal, he's subject to slavery in Egypt where he finds tremendous grace in the eyes of Potiphar, right, his Egyptian owner. Uh, but as we know, he was, very, uh, he was very handsome. And Potiphar's wife makes it a personal conquest to seduce him into adultery. And, uh, you know, we can only imagine as a young man the challenges that that faced. But due to his fear of heaven, his moral code, his allegiance to the teachings of his father. He overcomes these seductions only to be accused of rape 
the very antithesis of what actually happened, the complete opposite of who he actually was. He finds himself in a deep Egyptian dungeon. And this is what the Torah actually tells us. Then Joseph's master took him and placed him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now, as we know, the Torah, there's no wasted words, not even a wasted letter. Everything is deliberate. Everything teaches us something. So it seems that these last words are unnecessary, right? He was thrown in jail. Of course he was in jail. Where else would he be? And, uh, and I'm sure that many of the veterans here in this fellowship already know where this is going. The sages teach us that when he was in prison, he was there. He was there in prison. The Torah is telling us that he was fully present, that down there in the depths of the Egyptian dungeons, suffering for a crime that not only didn't he commit, but a crime that was the diametrical opposite of his superhuman self-control and virtue and strength, that he was not spiraling into a vortex of regret and resentment and victimhood. No, he was able to fully be present and embrace his reality, knowing for reasons that he couldn't possibly understand, that he wasn't supposed to understand, that he was exactly where he needed to be that he was exactly where Hashem wanted him to be. And how could he know that with such certainty? Because that's where he was. And that was the faith and the trust of Yosef, of Joseph, of Joseph the Tzaddik. And that is the faith that's being demanded of each and every one of us right now. Because let's think about it. Here we are. <clears throat> We're being accused of war crimes and genocide, exactly the opposite of who we are as we're running, as we know, the most moral war in the history of wars, where we've sacrificed nearly a hundred of our precious soldiers in order to prevent any innocent civilian deaths. And you probably know why I'm doing the quotation marks. And it's because I don't actually believe that allowing our soldiers to die is the moral thing to do, because I actually believe that it is immoral to sacrifice our soldiers to protect Nazi jihadist terrorists and their sympathizers, which is nearly the entire population of Gaza. But that's not the point. The point is that like Joseph, we're being accused of being exactly the opposite of who we truly are. And we find ourselves in a pit, in a dungeon of murder and hatred and pain. And so what do we learn from Yosef? What do we learn from him? We learn not to bemoan our reality, not to resent our situation not to be angry about it and not to fear it, but to accept it in faith and understand that this is exactly where we need to be on our journey towards redemption. Despite the fact we have no idea how we're going to get there, how redemption is going to play out. We have no idea. We don't know. And we aren't supposed to know. We are supposed to trust in Hashem with every ounce of our being. Now, I understand that some people have a, an aversion to this type of thinking. They feel like this type of thinking can lead to a, a complacency, to a detached sort of surrender, that we aren't supposed to act at all. That we're supposed to just pray and wait. And that is not what I'm saying here. I believe we're supposed to do everything in our power to defeat our enemies and stop the desecration of Hashem's name that is growing stronger every day. We're supposed to pick up our weapons and fight with all that we have to avenge the slaughtered, raped, 
murdered sons and daughters of Israel. But that exertion, that assertion, needs to be built upon a foundation of faith and trust that this is where we're supposed to be. Does that make sense? We're, we're supposed to be fighting with all of our hearts, but at the same time to know that this war, we're fighting it because this is where Hashem wants us to be right now. He wants us to be fighting against Hamas, against Hezbollah, against Iran, against the global jihad, and yes, to fight against the forces of evil and darkness and death that are throughout the world who are aligning themselves with them right now. But there's a world of difference between fighting with our backs against the wall because we feel forced against our will to fight for our survival. There's a world of difference between that and choosing to be here, choosing to embrace the situation that Hashem has put us in and, and taking this opportunity to sanctify His name and to fight for His nation. So yes, my friends, this is a fight for our existence, but the real battle is within our own hearts. And I bless us that we're able to embody the faith and the trust of Joseph and embrace this reality with the faith and the trust and the knowledge that it's Hashem's will to be fighting this fight, that we're exactly where we're supposed to be. And when we do that, I know in my heart that redemption is right around the corner. We have, we have the faith of Joseph in our spiritual DNA. We have the courage and the ferocity of the Maccabees pulsing through our veins. May we merit to channel that faith and that trust and that love and that courage and bring the redemption quickly in our days. Amen. Hey, thank you, Ari. That's really beautiful. But just to be there, that's like you know the pasuk in the Torah just says that Yosef was there. Wherever he found himself, it's like, okay, this is where I'm meant to be. And here I am on, in some ways, the sidelines of Jewish history as I watch Jewish history unfold in the United States and in Europe. And the rise in attacks against the Jews and the rise in Jew hatred in America in particular is at an all-time high. Have you ever noticed that the word for Jew hatred is anti-Semitism? But with regards to Muslims, the word is called Islamophobia. One says, stop hating the Jew. And then the other is saying, stop being scared of Islam. And if you think about that for a second, the assumption that naturally reflects in language is that people are proactively hating and against the Jews, whereas with Muslims, they're overly terrified. And it's just, think about, to convince me that the Jews are the aggressors, where no one seems to be significantly scared of us, while the Muslims are the victims that everyone is saying, don't be scared of them. It's like everyone is phobic of them for a reason. Because in India and Pakistan and Afghanistan and in Paris and in Ireland and in Germany and in Canada and the second night of Hanukkah, Friday night, in the Jewish neighborhood of Los Angeles, look at what the Jews had to do as they were celebrating Hanukkah. They had to watch this go by their homes and synagogues. So watching from the side, from Judea, what's unfolding in America, and I also know that the exile is destined to come to an end. Four-fifths got left behind in Egypt. 
and the Jews in America, can they not see what's coming? And so I wrote this letter to American Jews, and I'll be sending it out this week. And sometimes I feel like a lone man screaming in the wilderness. But in these times, I just can't keep silent. So I know it's not popular. And I know that I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback from rabbis in America and from Americans saying, what are you saying? Why are you scaring everyone? But I just have to be honest. And so I'm writing this letter to my dear Jewish brothers and sisters in America. The people of Israel have a destiny. It is a force of nature. It is the only reality. And it is the access upon which everything else spins. Jewish history and the Jewish future are directed phenomena that must happen. Nothing will change that. Without this recognition, one is completely incapable of understanding what is happening today and what will happen tomorrow. Right now, Israel is at war. Regardless of all obstacles and challenges, Jewish destiny will unfold, but only in the land of Israel. In Israel, true everlasting victory for the children of Israel is assured outside of Israel. Jews will find themselves alone, defenseless, hated, attacked, and eliminated. There is no future for Jews outside of Israel. Do the Jews outside of Israel fail to see the tragedy that approaches? Or do they see it and fail to understand what they see? Or do they understand it but fail to comprehend how they are required to respond? It's as if one beholds reality and rejects it. It's as if one trembles in fear and seeks refuge under falling trees and broken reeds. American Jews have tragically trusted the liberal politicians, hoping that the Gentile champions of civil rights will stand up for Jewish rights when the time comes and Jews are threatened. This is a video of Vice President Kamala Harris. Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. As a result of the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen an uptick in anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic incidents across America. For so many people in our nation, the past few days and weeks have brought about all too familiar fears. Fears that they will be targeted, profiled, or attacked simply because of who they are, how they worship, or how they look. And so today, I am proud to announce the Biden-Harris administration will develop our nation's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. And so while Jews can't light Hanukkah candles in peace and in freedom, the politicians that they supported are establishing a squad to counter Islamophobia. American Jews have generously invested in the academia trusting and believing that their investment in education would help eliminate ignorance as a source of ill will, racism, and anti-Semitism. But inversely, American universities have become the breeding ground of arrogance, godlessness, and Jew hatred. This is a video of the president of Penn University in Congress. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, 
specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable. The Jewish people in America trying to establish moral clarity and promote a culture that venerates diversity and equality, American Jews acting as role models have always been among the first to financially support and march in support of the cause of mistreated and marginalized minorities. American Jews naturally believed that if Jews are ever singled out, marginalized or threatened, that their fellow minority groups will remember the loyalty that American Jewry gave them and stand with American Jews and declare that Jewish lives matter too. This is a video from the founder of Black Lives Matter. Um, the other thing I'll say is Palestine is our generation in South Africa. And if, <laughs> if, if we don't step up uh, boldly and courageously to end the, the imperialist project that's called Israel, um, we're doomed. All the desperate programs, schemes, politics, plans, and solutions have proven to be dead-end pursuits. The one thing that is real, trustworthy, and makes sense has been absent in the American Jewish plan. God. The God of Israel has proven over and over again to be the only ally and guardian of our people. There can be no reliable denial of the truth of this fact. The time for Jews in America is coming out. The small one word that means so much is lacking, God. My Jewish brothers and sisters, return to your land, the good land. Return to your purpose, return to your source, return to yourself, return to our creator. Come home, seek after the truth of your life, follow your innermost voice. That addiction to entertainment, pleasures and foolish irrelevancies has displaced, silenced, and drowned out that voice. Hear the voice that emanates from the highest place within you. The same voice that called on Abraham and his children now calls upon you, his direct descendants. Anachnu b'nei Israel, We are the children of Israel. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God. Hashem is one. Wake up to this call because time is short. Wake up to this call before it's too late. Hear the voice calling you home. And so that's the letter. I'm going to be sending that out to the Jewish newspapers and Jewish communities that I know around the world. I want them to see those videos juxtaposed to it as they just see the absolute futile efforts of trying all these schemes without ever turning to God. And, you know, I heard that the president of Penn resigned after that just embarrassing reality. But that doesn't change the entire culture of Jew hatred on that campus or on the campus of Harvard or MIT. And 
it's so funny that the Jews were fighting tooth and nail against the systemic racism only to discover the only systemic hatred in the university system is systemically against the Jews. And the universities and their hatred of Jews and Israel is beyond reason or logic. And for years, they've been persecuting people for misgendering people or not using the right pronouns. That's microaggressions. In Canada, they wanted to pass a law. You have to use made-up pronouns because it's not sensitive and even violent to the students to call them by not their preferred pronouns, but calling for the genocide of Jews. <laughs> Unless the speech becomes conduct, it shouldn't be considered harassment. So Harvard, Penn, and MIT, they've totally emptied their world of any moral truth. The focus on woke microaggressions in some attempt to virtue signal to their colleagues, the academia, just, just made complying to the mentally ill a law enforced by the police. <laughs> but when it comes out to calling Jewish genocide, well, it's a question of context. And so what they did is they succeeded in bringing their students to a place where lies are seen as truths and truths are seen as lies to the place where there is no truth. There is no good. There is no evil because the war against the Jew is the ultimate war against God. And finally, the masks are being taken off. And so with that, what do we do? That means we have to add another Hanukkah candle. We have to bring more light into the world. And we have to bring more Torah into the world because the Torah is the only truth that will get us through all of this. And so here we are, always around the time of Hanukkah, we learn the stories of Joseph. And the stories of Joseph begin with Yaakov. Yaakov, Vayeshev Yaakov. It says that Yaakov just finally, after such a hard life with Lavan and working for one wife and another wife and fighting Esau, he just wanted to dwell in peace and serenity. But for tzaddikim, for servants of Hashem, our purpose in this world is not serenity. Our purpose in this world is to serve Hashem. And the map of Jacob's life, the reality of Israel, it's almost one and the same. When you read the story of Gog Magog, how does it go? It's Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8. And here's what it says. After many days, you will be called to arms, the war of Gog Magog. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought from out of the nations, and now all of them live there in safety. So the people of Israel are brought back to the land, and they live in relative safety, in relative prosperity, and then the war of Gog Magog breaks out. Because did we in Israel banish the darkness? Did we bring the light? No, like Yaakov, we finally made it back to Israel after such a long exile. We just wanted to live in peace and serenity. And Israel has accomplished a lot. But directionally, we were never focused on eliminating the evil from the world. We wanted peace and quiet. Netanyahu used to say with regards to Hamas, we offer you quiet for quiet. We wanted to give them quiet if they gave us quiet. That's not the way 
to deal with evil in the world. That's not the way to bring light into the world. And today, you know, the Israel Defense Forces, Saha, the Israeli army is called Tzva Haganali Israel. The Israel Defense Forces. It's like, if you don't attack us, we just want quiet. And at the very beginning of the foundings of the state of Israel, there was a concept called, that, the, that the Haganah called Havlaga, which meant even if the Arabs attack us, just restrain yourself because we don't want to shake the boat. The British might get upset. And today in Hebrew, they call it Hachala. We have to just contain it. We have to accept the Arab violence. We don't want to start a war. We, we just want the quiet instead of zero tolerance for crime. The chief of police in Israel, when the Arabs were rioting in Lod, said, no, it's okay. We should, in some ways, like defund the police. It's good to let them blow off steam and let them riot every once in a while. Instead of saying, no, the Torah says, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, righteousness, righteousness pursue, justice, injustice pursue. There should be no crime anywhere. There should be no evil anywhere. Anything unholy in the land of Israel should be erased from the land of Israel. And until Israel chooses victory, we will never have peace. And as long as we show restraint for evil or acceptance of violence against innocent Jews, we will never find rest. And so Joseph is the story. That's what Jacob wanted rest. And here now the story of Joseph unfolds. And there's really two lessons that we can learn from Joseph, real fundamental lessons about how to get through these times. Joseph is known as the tzaddik. And you look at Psalm 35, verse 25, 37, verse 25. It says, Nar ha'iti I have been young and now I am old and I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. Lo ra'iti Now, what does that mean? It means that a righteous man lives with God's presence in his life at all times. You never saw a righteous man forsaken. Even in the darkest times, the righteous lived with a God consciousness. Even in the pits of Auschwitz, the holy rabbis kept God close. And Yosef, as he was in the pit, betrayed by his brothers, become the language of our fellowship. He was sent down to Egypt with a spice cart. Just the signature of God that he was able to see that in the darkest time, betrayed by his brothers, all alone, left for dead, sold into slavery. It wasn't sulfur and gasoline that was sent down to Egypt. It was a spice cart. It was God saying, don't worry, Joseph, I'm right here with you. In your darkest times, be a tzaddik. Even when you can't see it, know that God is with you. And that's why it says, Hodu la Hashem kitov ki chasto. Give thanks to God. Usually it's translated for his loving compassion endures forever. But the Hebrew doesn't say that exactly. It says, give thanks to God. Ki chasto. For his love and compassion exists in eternity. Meaning, in order to see God's love and compassion, you need the eyes of Le'olam. You need to see the big picture. You need time to unfold. Because in the moment, things can be hard. Things can be dark. You can be lost in a pit. But when you have Le'olam vision, then you see the big picture. You know that there's a process that I need to go through. There's a process that the world needs to go through. And in that process, God's love and compassion will be revealed. 
And that's why we're given the prophecies in the Bible to always give us the big picture and the end game. Because there might be moments where we find ourselves in tunnels, living in the pits of hell. And who knows what to do, but to know that somehow out of that darkness, light will emerge. And the biggest lesson from Joseph that I keep on thinking about now is not just from Joseph's perspective, that you know he never complains. The entire time, he lives in a consciousness that something is happening, that God's plan is unfolding, that the dreams that God gave him will somehow be materialized. But there's the other side of the story, and that's Joseph's brothers. And everything that Joseph did was for their benefit. You know, first to provide them during the famine, but also to help them do tshuva, to help them repent over what they did so they could be forgiven, so they could fix themselves, so they could forgive themselves. But the whole time, Joseph's brothers, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, all they saw was an evil Egyptian tyrant charging them with being spies, taking their brother into captivity, throwing him into prison, threatening them. They were terrified. All they saw was a tyrant. And at the end, Joseph takes off his mask and says, it's me, your brother Joseph. All that you've been through, it was just for you. And I think about that a lot, that one day, everything Israel is experiencing now, it's so hard. The worst part of my day is waking up every morning and waiting to read the list of the soldiers that fell the night before. Did they fall? Do I know them? Every day I cry. It's so hard now. But a day is coming soon. Everything will be rectified. And we'll see that everything that was happening to us was happening for us. And that's why they say one of the most important verses in all of prophecy is in the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. And it says, But the righteous will live by his faith. Sadiq be'emunato yichyeh. And when learning out this verse in the prophets, the sages of Israel say that all of our life boil down to one idea. Emunah. Will we have faith and trust in God? The mitzvot are only there as tools to help us bring that out in our lives. But all that matters, it's all boiled down to that one sentence, that the righteous will live with emunah. That what is emunah? It's not only trusting in Hashem when things are clear. Specifically, King David says, Tov leodot l'Hashem, it's good to give thanks to God. In the morning, your faith at nighttime, when things are dark, when things are not clear, that's when we need the power of Yosef HaTzadik. That's the time that we need to draw on the power of Joseph to say where we are right now, even if it's in an Egyptian prison, this is exactly where we need to be. And from that place, serve Hashem. And from that place, find the spice cart. From that place, try to bring the light. And so as we celebrate Hanukkah together, I want to bless us all 
that you know the Hanukkah menorah is modeled after the menorah in the temple. And the candelabra has the parts where the oil was filled, the cups, the kosiot. And the way that they were shaped was an inverted triangle facing where the top part of the menorah was wide and the bottom part was small. And, you know, if you look at most candles, it's usually the opposite. There'll be like a small part where the wick comes out and then maybe the big part is like where the oil is held. Why in the temple is inverse the other way. And they are a mirror of the windows in the temple. Now, the temple didn't have electricity. The temple didn't have fluorescent lights. So you would imagine that you would want the windows to be small on the outside and then let in as much light as you can on the inside to bring in as much light for the priests in the temple. But they were shaped exactly like the menorah where they were small on this side, but going out, getting bigger, an inverse triangle to the out. And that's the idea that the temple in Jerusalem, the menorah in particular, the light of the menorah is what's lighting up the rest of the world. It's not that we need the light of the world to come into the temple to illuminate it. No, we have the big part where the wick is to maximize the light of the menorah. And the window opening up to the outside is as big as possible, not because the world is supposed to shine into the temple, but the temple is going to illuminate the rest of the world. And so now, as we celebrate Hanukkah, Ner Ish Uveto, each man becomes the high priest of his home. And each one of his children are the Shoshanim, the little priests of his temple. And together, one family at a time, one family at a time to bring more and more light into this world, more and more love into this world, more and more family into this world. And what I've just felt now more than ever is that, you know, I don't want to use the word Jew anymore. It seems like that name was given to us by Babylonians when we were exiled from our land. But we are B'nai Israel. We are the children of Israel. We are one extended family. All of us are the children of Israel. And that's really what Hanukkah is there to remind us about. All of us are one extended family. And all of us, when we light the menorah in our home, are there lighting up the rest of the world. So my friends, I hope you have a beautiful Hanukkah, a beautiful week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. You are the light in our lives. And anytime that you come to Israel, I know it's coming soon. I know every single one in this fellowship. It's just a matter of time. If not 2024, then 2025. There is a farm in the mountains of Judea that is just waiting for you. And there are families on these mountains that are just dying to host you. And we can't wait to see you. And so one day we'll be lighting not a Hanukkah in our home together, but we'll be lighting a giant golden menorah in the temple together, celebrating a new era where a house of prayer for all nations will bring peace on earth and God's presence back to Jerusalem. So thank you all, friends. Shavua Tov, Chanukah Sameach. And let me bless you now with the blessing that the first high priest, Aaron, blessed all the children of Israel.
יברכך אדוני וישמרך, יאר אדוני פניו אליך ויחונך, יישא אדוני פניו אליך, ויישם לך שלום. שלום, my friends, חנוכה שמח. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.